In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I like to wish you all a very blessed and great fast, in which actually we re-examine our relationship with God and grow in depth with our relationship with God day after day. Our Bible study tonight, Psalm 88. And as you know, each psalm has a title. Sometimes when we study the title of the psalm, it tells us many things about the psalm itself. So the title of the psalm is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the chief musician, set to Mahalath Leonoth, a contemplation of Heman the Israelite. So, a song. This psalm is a song, but it is a very sad song as we will study together. And this Psalm 88 is considered the saddest psalm in the book of Psalms. It reflects on the passion of Christ during, you know, from the time of going to the garden till the time of his death and burial. Then it is a son of the son of Korah. Son of Korah, they are Levites from the family of Korah. The sons of Korah, during the time of David, they had three functions. Number one, they served in the musical aspect of the temple worship. Number two, they served as temple gatekeepers. And number three, as beakers. So during the time of David, he appointed the children of Korah to be in charge of the musical aspect of the temple worship, temp temple gatekeeper and bakers. Korah, their grandfather, led a rebellion of 250 community leaders against Moses during the wilderness after they came out of Egypt because he was jealous of Aaron, why Aaron and his children became priests. We also can be priests. And God judged Korah and his leaders, and they all died. As we read in the book of Numbers, chapter 16, verse 32, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together. But the sons of Korah did not die. Numbers, chapter 26, verse 11, nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. And their name came as the sons of Korah in 10 psalms. So they composed or chanted 10 psalms. Then in the title to the chief musician. Chief musician, by some they said it is presented, this psalm is presented to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or others said the chief musician is the leader of choir or musician during David's time like Heman the singer or Asaph the singer also. Then we read this word set to Mahalath Linos. Mahalath Linos. What does this mean? Mahalath maybe refers to musical instrument upon which the song was composed. And actually Mahalath occurred also in Psalm 53 in the title of Psalm 53. Some says this instrument is a stringed instrument. 
Others said maybe it is the tune of the song. Others said Mahalas means the chief or band leader. But actually some fathers translated as our maladies or our disease because the same word identical occurred in three other references Exodus 15:26 Proverb 18:14 Second Chronicles 21:15 and in all these references as disease and it points here to spiritual malady spiritual illness with which all mankind is infected and if this psalm refers to the passion of Christ then the word malady or disease is the maybe more accurate translation because it refers how he carried our sins in his body so they believe it refers to the malady of sin and the weaknesses it causes and according to St. Augustine it means also pain he said for Melath as we find in the interpretation of Hebrews names seems to say for one traveling or one in pain so St. Augustine this this means suffering also this psalm is one of 13 psalms called contemplation in the title a song psalm of the sons of Korah to the chief musician said to Mahalath Linos a contemplation and then of Heman Israelite. Heman is the author and the singer of this psalm who is Heman? Heman is from the tribe of Judah then he is not from the children of Korah so sometimes when they say children of Korah or sons of Korah maybe the composer is somebody the author and then they compose the music and then the author can chant so most commentators agree that this Heman is the man alluded to in 1st King chapter 4 verse 31 as the brother of Ethan and one of the five sons of Zerah and Zerah was the son of Judah and hence he called Israelite. he was noted for his great wisdom and his musical ability and service as a leader of the temple music but nothing is known on the occasion on which this psalm was written except probably indicated as indicated in the title maybe it was written in time of sickness or pandemic but from the psalm itself we find that it was when the mind was covered and overwhelmed with darkness and there is no comfort so the psalm reveals the honest intense emotion as the psalmist talks to God about his severe suffering the psalmist is describing his own personal experience not speaking on behalf of the nation and this psalm does not conclude with praise and thanksgiving with most of the psalms of David he starts with complaining or suffering but at the end he ends with thanksgiving but this psalm does not conclude with praise and thanksgiving or comfort or joy 
But from the beginning to the end, it expresses anguish, grief, and sadness. That's why I told you this is the most of the saddest psalm among all the psalms. That's why many believe it's a prophecy about the passion and suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm is 18 verses. From verse 1 to 9, the psalmist severe suffering. He's explaining his severe suffering. From verse 10 to 18, a prayer for mercy and deliverance. Verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. So, in the midst of great despair and lack of understanding why he suffers, the psalmist still goes to God in faith and crying to him and calls him God of my salvation. And he did not say God of salvation or God of our salvation, but he personalizes his relationship with God, referring to God as God of my salvation. And by addressing God in this way, the psalmist also wishes to persuade God to act as God of his salvation. So you are God of my salvation. Don't wait. Come, deliver me, rescue me. He is asking God to listen to his cry as he prays to him. And the opening verse leads us to expect a much more hopeful psalm. Maybe you expect from verse 1 that the Lord intervened and delivered him. So when the psalmist begins by praising God as God of my salvation, we expect that he experienced that rescue, that deliverance in the moment. That's why he called him God of my salvation. But the case was not this. This description, my salvation, was about past experience and holding to it for the future hope. So from the experience of the psalmist he had in the past, when the Lord worked salvation for him in many times, now he is encouraged to hope that God would appear for him help him out of his present stress. So, God of my salvation was the only beam of light in this dark psalm. He had obtained no answer in this psalm. That's why he pours out and records more earnest petition to God. He told him, I have cried out day and night. So prayer, when it's expressed by crying, shows that the person in distress and shows that it was vocal prayer and without ceasing, day and night. St. Augustine comments on verse 1 and says, Let us therefore now hear the voice of Christ singing before us in prophecy. Now Christ came and rose from the dead and set us free from the malady of sin. So he is singing before us, to whom his own choir should respond either in imitation or thanksgiving. So now we respond by thanking him for the deliverance from the captivity of Satan, and we imitate him by singing in thanksgiving. Verse 2, Let my prayer come before you, Incline your ear 
to my cry. Let my prayer come before you. Prayer was passionate, cried out and constant day and night. So the psalmist was desperate for God to bend down, to incline his ear, to hear and answer his prayer. Let my prayer come before you, not before men, but before you, O God. Let not my prayer be shut out. Let it be admitted and let it come to you with acceptance. So in his grief, he wishes to feel that he is standing before the Lord and in his presence, as though God is only preoccupied with listening to him, nothing else. And the agony was not only superficial, but it went deep to his soul, as we read in verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. So it was inward in the soul and outward. Outward threatening his, his physical life. That's why he said, my life draws near to the grave. He's about to die. And inward, my soul is full of troubles. So he's pleading the urgency of his need at the ground for why God should hear him. So the suffering expressed in this psalm close to Psalm 22, which also is about the passion of Christ. And the word full, my soul is full of trouble, means satisfied as we satisfied with food. So I cannot take any more. I cannot take any more trouble. So as if he is saying this trouble was great and he cannot bear more. He cannot sustain anymore. This reminded me with our Lord Jesus Christ when he was in garden and he said, my soul is extremely sorrowful even unto death. St. Jerome believes that the psalmist here described what the Lord Jesus Christ endured on the cross. Because Christ carried the sins of the whole world, then descended to the pit to liberate the captives. He draws near to death, but it was impossible for the pet to take hold of Christ because he is without sin. He descended intentionally by his intention, by his will to Hades to liberate the captives. St. Augustine also says, why therefore should we not say that the soul of Christ was full of the evils of humanity, though not of human sins, because he carried our sins. And another prophet says of him that he grieved for us. He grieved for us. Verse 4, I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength. So the psalmist was so weak and afflicted that he felt and other regarded him as already practically dead. He is regarded as dying man, so near to death that he may be considered already among the dead, or he was accounted as worthy 
of death. And this applies for the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Jews, they consider Jesus worthy of death. The Sanhedrin counted him worthy of death, and the common people cried, crucify him, crucify him. I am counted with those who go down to the dead. I am like a man who has no strength. Verse 5, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. So the psalmist says that this seemed to pull on him as he was passively adrift, unlike the slain. Verse 4 and verse 5 allude the, the image in front of us like a field in the battle during the war. And in this field, we find slain people, wounded people. They are scattered all over the plain. And sometimes people who are wounded severely, mortally, deadly wounds, they throw them into the pet because there is no hope for them to recover. So he is like those who are thrown into a pet dug on a battlefield, among whom there are often some who appear to be mortally wounded, although still alive, but because they cannot recover. They are so weak as not able to resist. So he thought himself quite neglected of whom there was no more care and notice taken than of a dead man. The psalmist dreaded death, fearing that it would mean being cut off not only from the earthly relationship, but also from the relationship with God. That's why after he said adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, people don't remember them, and who are cut off from your hand. So, no relationship with men, because you are dead, and even with God, you remember no more, cut off from your hand. And by hand here, the hand of God, in judicial way. And this can be applied for Christ. Christ in his death was like one of these, who was cut off in a judicial way, not for his own sins, because he is for the Holy One, but for the transgression of his people. In the Septuagint version, this verse came as, I became free among the dead. I became free among the dead. And this has been applied by the fathers to our Lord voluntary death, free among the dead. I am the only one who died by my own will and my authority. Everyone is obliged to die, but Christ alone gave up his life by his own will and his authority, by his choice, and he could take it again. He went into the grave and came out when he chose. The dead are bound in the grave, but Jesus was free, not obliged to continue in that state as the dead were. So St. Jerome commented on verse 5 and said, He did well 
by saying like the slain. He received the wounds for the sake of the salvation of humanity. So Jesus was wounded for our salvation. According to the words of Isaiah, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. St. Cyril of Jerusalem says, Although he was called the dead, yet not like those dead who lie in hell, because he was the only one free among the dead. Free means he chose the time of his resurrection and he rose on that time. Verse 6, You have laid me in the lowest pit, in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depth. The psalmist now acknowledged more distinctly that whatever adversity he endured proceeded from the divine hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit. God is treating him as though he was actually dead. In the depth means in darkness, in the very, very deep pit underground. So all these expressions intended to convey the idea that he was near the grave. There was no hope for him. He must die. Also, it is counted with this idea of trouble, of anguish and sorrow. Like this case of mental darkness, of which the grave is an image. Sometimes we experience this darkness, complete darkness, and the grave is the image of this darkness. So the whole scene was sad one. He was overwhelmed with grief, and so only the prospect of continued sorrow and darkness. St. Augustine says, They laid me in the lowest pit, that is, in the deepest pit, for so it is in the Greek. But what is the lowest pit but the deepest woe than which there is none more deep? Whence in another psalm it is said, you brought me out also of the bit of misery, in a place of darkness, in the shadow of death. Whilst they knew not what they did, they laid him there, thus deeming of him. So, they didn't know what Jesus did, but they buried him, and they said it is befitting him to die, he is worthy to die. Verse 7, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. In verse 7, actually, here the cause of all the psalmist's suffering is touched. God is angry with him. The source of the affliction was the righteous wrath of God. The psalmist had a deep sense of his own sinfulness, even as he felt himself sinking under all the waves of God. He did not protest that God's wrath is unfair. He did not say, your wrath is unfair. The afflictions of God's people are compared to waves of seas. That's why he said, I'm under all your waves. The waves of seas, which are many, one after another, and threaten to overwhelm the person and make him drown and sing. The suffering of Christ was the same. 
Many times in the scripture, afflictions are compared to water. Christ's sorrows and suffering are very appropriately signified by deep waters and overflowing floods. As we read in Psalm 69 verse 1, For the waters have come up to my neck. No wonder it was said of Jesus before he went to the cross, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. These were brought upon him by the Father, by God. He did not spare him, as St. Paul said in Romans chapter 8. He laid all the punishment due to the sins of his people on him, on Christ. He caused every wave to come upon him and him to endure all sorrow and suffering the law and the justice of God could require. But I don't you to think that the father did this against his son because the will of the father is the same like the will of the son. The son accepted to do this by his own will and the father offered him as a sacrifice. And this son responded to all the people who deny the legal aspect of the cross. Those who are speaking about the cross just it is for healing our nature and they deny the penal substitution but this verse actually is very very clear your wrath lies heavy upon me you have afflicted me with all your waves and that's what St. Paul said he did not spare his own son and St. Augustine says there he came by himself suffered the waves of the shouts of men saying crucify him crucify him and with the increasing violence of the storm he went down to the depth of the sea the lord endured suffering on the hand of jude then at the end of verse 7 we find the word sila sila is pause for contemplation for reflection here actually after verse 7 there is a need to pause in order to contemplate on the significance of Christ's passion and suffering for our salvation, how he carried all our sins and died in order to save us. Verse 8, you have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. So in his affliction, his former friends wanted nothing to do with him. The disciples, all of them, left the Lord Jesus Christ. This also was seen as God's doing. This similar what happened with Job also. His friends did not understand him. Our Lord's suffering on earth was such that his own disciples forsook him. And according to St. Augustine, it means his disciples who ran away and did not even attend his trial. Peter, who wanted to attend the trial, he denied him three times. So this verse, verse 8, about the disciples. The psalmist also probably means, although they were his acquaintances, they considered him only as a man, not as God. Like the people who heard the teaching of Jesus Christ, and he did so many miracles with them, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Him. St. Augustine says, 
Or shall we give this word a deeper meaning? The word of verse 8. That by saying you have put away, he means you have kept my true identity hidden from my acquaintances. You did not reveal it to them. So maybe you have put away means you kept my identity that I am God in the flesh. You kept it hidden. You did not reveal it to them. I became an abomination to them. It means that the psalmist affliction was a kind which made him unclean. So literally, understand it of the psalmist being in a prison or dungeon or in captivity. And some understood it if the affliction made him unclean, maybe bodily disease by which he was detained as a prisoner at home in isolation. And I cannot get out. Verse 8, perhaps worst of all the Psalms felt that there was no escape. Life was diminishing from him, and if God did not respond, there seemed to be no remedy. Verse 9, my eyes wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called you daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. So literally his eyes decays or fails, indicating exhaustion. As we read in Job chapter 16 and verse 20, my eyes pour out tears to God. The psalmist reminded God of his constant prayer. Made in the familiar posture, I stretched out my hand to God. He has prayed earnestly and long, even though he received no answer. His whole body participated in prayer. His eyes wept, his voice cried, his hands stretched out, his heart broke of affliction. Nothing can make a true believer cease praying. In spite of all this affliction, he continued to pray. Christ, in his troubles in the garden and on the cross, prayed for himself, for divine support, and assistance as a man. He prayed for his friends, disciples, apostles, prayed for all should believe in him through the apostles. Even he prayed for his enemies when he said, God forgive them what they did for they don't know what they were doing. Verse 10, will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. By these words, the psalmist implies that if God did not make haste to rescue him, it would be too late because he would be dead. He is so close to death. Therefore, this was a critical point. God has to be quick to help him. There may not be another opportunity to save him. That's from the psalmist's perspective. He has prayed that God will show him his marvelous loving kindness. But the psalmist will soon be beyond the reach of it because he would die. Because from his point of view, there is only one answer to the question. And that is a negative one. This reminds me of Mary and Martha. When they thought God had only authority over the sick. But if Lazarus died, he can do nothing. Both of them said to the Lord, 
if you would have been here, our brother wouldn't die. Yes, we know that you can heal him from illness, but now he is dead. There is a stench. You cannot do anything for him. The same way the psalmist here in despair, he is asking, will you work wonders for the dead? If I die, can you raise me? The psalmist cannot believe that God will work such a miracle that the dead shall arise and praise him. He is wondering, am I to receive no mercy till I am dead? So no mercy from you until I die? And then you will work a miracle for my restoration and deliverance? Why you don't do it right now? Shall the dead suddenly rise up and worship and praise God? All this question came in his mind. So the psalmist does not any more than Job accept such a resurrection. In Job 14.14 If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. My change is the one who replaces me. So both of them have this question, if we die, is there any hope except the resurrection? He asks how long God meant to delay. Did he mean to do so till death intervened, that he might raise the dead by a miracle? So are you waiting like in Lazarus until I die, then you will raise me and do a miracle? In his view, those in grave cannot contemplate the character and greatness of God, as we read in verse 11. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? So, he urges this as a reason why he should be rescued now. We reproach God's power if we don't believe that it is as easy for him to restore life to death as to prevent the extreme danger. As I told you, Mary and Martha believed that God can prevent the death, but he cannot restore life after a person died. But this as if we are reproaching God's power. If we believe that he can prevent extreme danger, he can prevent the death, but it's not easy for him to restore life to the dead. And spiritually speaking, those who are spiritually dead by their lack of faith and belief may not experience the wonders of God. So we need to be alive spiritually in order to experience the wonder of God. As he said, shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? So those in the grave of sin, they will be blind to the loving kindness of God. His faithfulness will not be clear in the mind of people who live in the place of destruction, a grave of sin. St. Augustine says, If we suppose this relates to those whose flesh life has left, great wonders have been wrought among the dead, inasmuch as some of them have revived. So he is saying this verse, uh, verse uh, 11 is not about those who are physically dead because we know many people like Lazarus like the daughter of Jairus son of the widow they were raised from the dead 
So these verses are now not about those who are physically dead. And in our Lord's descent into hell and his ascent as the conqueror of death, a great wonder was wrought among the dead. He refers then in these words, Will you work wonder for the dead? To men so dead in heart. So he said these verse 10 and 11 are not people who are physically dead. Because God did wonders to people who are dead. But he's speaking about those who are spiritually dead. Dead in heart. That such great words of Christ could not rouse them to life. To the life of faith. For he doesn't say that wonders are not shown to them because they see them not, but because they do not profit them. So, they saw the wonders of God, but because they are dead in their hearts, like people, the Pharisees, who saw the man who was born blind, there was a miracle happened before them. So they saw it, but they did not benefit from it. Those then are dead, to whom wonders have not been shown, not because they saw them not, but since they lived not again through them. So they saw it. The wonders was done before them, but they did not actually believe in it. That's why they did not move from spiritual death into life in Christ. And verse 10 ended also by the word Selah and Selah to meditate on life and death and to proclaim God's loving kindness and faithfulness is the delight of his people our delight as Christian to proclaim to everyone the loving kindness of God and his faithfulness but in the grave they will neither have cause nor power to do it after the person is dead so the psalmist pursues the same sentiment which he had previously stated. Shall anyone make God's loving kindness known there in the grave? So, he is saying, it is a more appropriate and suitable time to rescue men while they are in the midst of danger than to raise them up from their graves when they are dead. And he is wondering how in the place where destruction seems to reign, like in the grave, where human hopes perish, and where the body decays back to dust, that anyone dwell there can honor God. When God delivers his servants, he confirms his faithfulness to his promises. So as if he's saying, if you deliver me right now, then your loving kindness and your faithfulness can be declared. But if you wait until I die, it is too late from, again, his perspective. So, God's wonder will not even be known in darkness, nor his righteousness, his faithfulness to his covenant in the land of forgetfulness, where men neither remember God nor are remembered by him. So, when a person lives in the darkness of sin, he will not see the wonders of God, even if it happened before his eyes. And his righteousness and his faithfulness we will forget it because it is the land of forgetfulness and God will not be remembered and will not be remembered also by God. Where the memory has decayed and where the remembrance of former things 
are unclear and insignificant. As we read in verse 12, shall you your wonders be known in the dark, in the darkness of the soul, and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? So he's saying, no. When memory has decayed and remembrance of former things is unclear and significance, there is no remembrance of God. So the psalmist turn from the somewhat vague speculation from verse 10 to 12 to himself and he start to pray again. In verse 13 he said, But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. So he is not yet a mere shade, an inhabitant of grave, he's still alive. He's still in the flesh and he can still cry to God. So after a brief focus on the terror and on the uncertainty of the grave, he once again sets his focus on God and prays to him. He contrasts himself with the dead, whose covenant relation with God is at end. So he at least can still pray, I'm not dead. And in spite of all the discouragement, he will not cease to pray. So he implies that his suffering and long continued miseries was not because of his own laziness, as if he had not sought God. No, he was seeking God. Prayer is the first thing in the morning he would do. So he said, I am not lazy. To you I have cried out, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. So, in the morning signifying he would pray to him very early, which is expressive of his eagerness, passion, persistence. And it signifies a sense he had of his need of divine help. I need your divine help. And the same we can see Christ rose early in the morning to pray, as we read in Mark 1.35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Verse 14. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? So the sad idea from earlier in the psalm is repeated again, that God is forsaking him, abandoning him. So the worst of the psalmist's pain and suffering was the sense that God in some way has forsaken him, that his soul was cast off from God. He is not more under the care of God. So the psalmist doesn't proudly enter into debate with God, but mournfully desire some remedy to his miseries and troubles. Why you cast me away from you? Why I'm not under your care? So in the time of affliction, the one who suffers often feels as though God has cast him away and as if God hid his face from him and also he's not listening to his prayer. Actually, in, in ministry, we see many, many good people want to ask this question when they are in time of suffering. How often this language expresses exactly what is passing in their mind why you abandon me? How difficult it is to see why God, who has all power, 
and who is infinitely benevolent, does not intervene to de deliver his people during the time of affliction. Also, this verse can be applied to Christ when his soul was exceedingly sorrowful unto death, and particularly when he was forsaken by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist is so afflicted, so crushed with sorrow and trouble, that his strength is nearly gone and can no longer endure it. He is ready to die. As we read in verse 15, I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. His suffering has been for a long time from his youth. His whole life has been a life of trouble and sorrow. His affliction had now lasted so long that he could hardly remember when it started. From my youth, it seemed to him as if he had been at this door ever since he was a child. Maybe from my youth is an exaggeration. But if we apply this to the Messiah, he was afflicted both with tongues and hands of men, by words and by strikes, and by the temptation of Satan, he was smitten and afflicted. As we read in verse 16, Your fierce wrath has gone over me, your terrors have cut me off. So, in the midst of intense anguish, man may often forget the multitude of God's goodness and complain as though there is nothing in his life since his youth but terrors and troubles. Many times we say, all my life is afflicted. And we forget how many times, how many blessings we had in our life. He said, I am distraught. The psalmist's thoughts were distracted and confused, and his mind disturbed with terrors of God upon him. He was unable to collect his thoughts. He was so tossed about that he could not judge his own condition in a calm and rational way. That's why he said, I am distraught. I cannot actually judge myself. I am confused. Concerning the non-believers, it is written, the wrath of God abide on him, as we read in John chapter 3, verse 36. God's terror may cause the weak believer to be distraught. Continuing the thought from the previous verse, the psalmist understood in some way God was the source of his present affliction. If he suffered terror, he could say to God that from him, your terror, your fierce wrath, it is intensive fierce wrath, expressing the hopelessness and continued state of his suffering. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. Even in his affliction, the psalmist believed in God. This was a crisis, but it was a crisis of faith, not of unbelief. God's wrath and terrors, of which he speaks in verse 16, were not of short continuance. He expresses them in verse 17 as have encompassed him all day long. Verse 17, he said, they came around me all day long, so they are not short. Like water, they engulfed me all together. So his trouble seemed to be like the waves of sea constantly breaking on the shore. 
they engulfed me. The psalmist felt overwhelmed as if he were about to drown in his misery. His troubles did not come one by one so that he could meet them one at a time. But they all came upon him together at once. Engulfed me. According to Jerome, the Pharisees, the priests, together with Pilate and common people, engulfed Jesus Christ all together. They engulfed me all together. Verse 18, the last verse. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. So the psalm ends here with no answer, but a continued cry to God, who alone can rescue him from such distress and despair. That his acquaintance left him was mentioned in verse 8, and now is repeated in verse 18, to show that this was a most aggravating circumstances of his affliction. When we go through hard time and we find everyone left us. This must be a very uncomfortable situation, to be in distress, whether of body or mind, to have no kind friend near to you, at least to help, to relieve or to comfort. So the sad psalmist ended the psalm with no answer, with no ray of light, yet believing in the fact of God's love. That's why he called him God's my salvation, though he can only see the signs of his wrath right now. He appealed like Job to God, though God seems utterly harsh to him, assured that if he has any hope at all, it is in God alone. So if there is any hope for my situation, only God. So did Christ's disciples and his friend whom he loved, they forsook him during the time of crucifixion. They all forsook him and fled when he was taken by his enemies. The Lord Jesus knew the meaning of these words when he suffered. Loved one and friend you have put far from me, my acquaintances into darkness. So in dreadful loneliness, he trod the wine press and all his garments were disdained as we read in Isaiah 63 verse 1 and 2. Who is this who comes from Adam with dyed garment? I have trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples no one was with me. This actually concludes Psalm 88. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.